Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. My name is Philip Harland. I'm a professor at York University in Toronto. We're continuing on in the series Early Christian Portraits of Jesus, and this is the second of two episodes on the portrayal of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke portrays Jesus primarily as a prophet like Elijah, a prophet to the marginalized of society. And so today we continue on in the analysis of the Gospel of Luke. Last time we spent most of our time at least introducing important things we needed to know about the two-volume work, Luke-Acts, in order to go on to this question of how Jesus is portrayed. So finally we get more fully into this analysis of the way in which the story of Jesus is told in the Gospel of Luke. I hope you enjoy this episode, and feel free to consult my website at philipharlan.com. Okay, let's continue now and work our way through the Gospel of Luke and see the way in which he portrays Jesus on the model of the ancient prophet Elijah and as the fulfillment of Israel's hopes of a savior. And remember that the title savior has implications for that Greco-Roman world in the way that Luke is using it as well as for the Judean world. Right off the bat, in the first couple chapters, in the birth narrative, we already have some of the main themes in how Jesus is going to be portrayed coming to the fore. And I want to draw your attention to some of these main themes in this opening section. Remember that Luke has a different birth narrative than Matthew. Back when we dealt with Matthew, we saw that in a way his birth narrative is a midrash on the story of Moses' birth. In Luke's gospel, the birth narrative is quite different. It's more down to earth, you could say, and more humble. You have the story of Elizabeth and Mary being related to one another, both being pregnant, and it turns out in the narrative that John the Baptist is the baby of Elizabeth and that Jesus is the baby in the tummy of Mary. Now, in the midst of telling this story, there is a point at which Mary comes to visit Elizabeth. Mary has this reaction to this meeting between the two of them. We want to look at the material here and see how themes that are here in the portrayal of Jesus already are going to be ongoing throughout the, the portrayal of Jesus in Luke's gospel. Luke has Mary say this, verses 46 and following of chapter 1. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from the thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry, this will ring a bell for those of you who just read the Beatitudes, with good things, and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. The idea is Mary's talking about what God has done by having the baby that's in her tummy coming. Scattered the proud, brought down the powerful, lifted up the lowly, filled the hungry, sent the rich away empty. One of the key ways in which Jesus is portrayed in Luke is as the prophet who has come as a prophet to the poor, a prophet to the outcasts, a prophet to the, the marginalized. And this is the ongoing portrait of Jesus in Luke's gospel. There's the father, Zachariah, the father of uh, John the Baptist. And then the Holy Spirit comes upon him and he starts to talk. 
Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty savior or horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us. Salvation being associated with the coming of this baby. There's more though, even still in the birth narrative. More of this idea of Jesus as Savior and the notion of him coming to the lowly. This is the passage that has angels appearing to shepherds when Jesus is born and say this, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, Soter. That title that I said is very common in inscriptions. Who is the Messiah, the Lord. This idea of Jesus as Savior and Messiah already on the table here and out in the open. And it's shepherds that are being told this, right? Not kings, not the rich, but shepherds. And that's important for the way that Luke is telling this story. You have even more about him being a Messiah and salvation in the next little section here, talking about Jesus being brought to Jerusalem to be circumcised in chapter 2, verses 25 and following. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace. He's talking to God here, right? According to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Seeing Jesus is seeing God's salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the nations, to the Gentiles. Let's look at what I consider the key passage that then becomes the basis on this portrayal of Jesus. Take a look at chapter 4, verses 16 and following. It's the first time in Luke's gospel where Jesus is publicly speaking and saying anything at all. The first time he speaks, this is what you get. When Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, end quote. Jesus is saying, I am the anointed one of God, anointed by God's Spirit, and my role as the anointed prophet of God, anointed by the Spirit, is to come to the poor, to the captives, to the blind, to the oppressed. This marginalized segment of society, this, the underdog's emphasis of Luke's portrayal of Jesus. And this is going to be underlined for you over and over again. But take a look at the rest of this passage because it gives you even more. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came out of his mouth. They said, Is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, Do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did in Capernaum. And Jesus said, Truly I tell you, here's a key aspect of the portrayal of Jesus here, a key to interpreting the rest of the gospel. No prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah. As soon as he talks about himself as a prophet, he starts talking about Elijah. 
When the heaven was shut up three years and six months, there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to the widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of a contemporary of Elijah, Elisha, prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Here, after his first public speaking in Luke's narrative, Jesus quotes from a passage in Isaiah that is about a prophet for the oppressed. Then goes on to say, it's been fulfilled in your, in your sight. Then goes on to compare himself to Elijah. Now, he quotes from Isaiah, but there's another thing that probably is working in the mind of Luke in connection with this Elijah portrayal. And another prophet in Malachi, Hebrew Bible prophets are claiming to be speaking on behalf of God and telling the people what God says. So this is the context of this. As with all the ancient prophets, that's how it's presented. And it's Yahweh here talking about the great day when God will save his people. And in the midst of this, in chapter 4 of Malachi, chapter 4, verse 5, Lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of Yahweh comes. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents so that I will not come and strike the land with a curse. This idea of a prophet like Elijah coming in the future is precisely what's behind all that chatter about John the Baptist that you guys have already read about, right? Is he Elijah? Well, it's this model of the prophecy from Malachi expecting another Elijah that's at work in that characterization of John the Baptist. But in Luke's gospel, the shift is from John the Baptist to Jesus as the Elijah that is predicted here. This is never quoted explicitly, though, in Luke. It seems to be an ongoing assumption. This expectation of a new Elijah is an ongoing assumption of Luke when he's telling the story of Jesus, and Jesus is portrayed as that new Elijah. We're going to have more evidence than what we've got so far. Don't worry. Let's work our way through. That is the key, though, to interpreting all the Gospel of Luke, in my opinion, this passage we've just dealt with. So chapter 4, verses 16 to 30. Let's work through some more of this material now in Luke's narrative and see how this prophetic role starts to get unpacked as you proceed. In Luke's gospel, as uh, he's drawing on some of Mark, he has healings at this point. He then has a series of episodes that point to Jesus hanging out with what are considered sinners. So the oppressed and marginalized of society are included among those are tax collectors and sinners. And that Jesus in this gospel is portrayed as hanging out with them as well as hanging out with Pharisees. You then have the inaugural sermon from chapter 6 and following. The Sermon on the Plain in Luke's Gospel. Luke has Jesus talking to peasants and saying, blessed are the poor, the actual poor. Blessed are the actual hungry. Jesus' role in coming to bring blessings for the poor, for the hungry, for those who weep. In Luke, you have something you don't have in Matthew. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. The reversal of rich and poor, an ongoing theme in Luke's gospel. Now look at chapter 7, verses 11 to 17, which is another key to understanding the Elijah prophet portrayal of Jesus here. Namely, that Luke seems to deliberately tell a healing of Jesus in a way that echoes a healing that Elijah did. Here in chapter 17 of 1 Kings, you have a story about Elijah visiting a widow. And the widow he visits has a son, and the son dies. What does Elijah do? He raises the widow's son from the dead. What do you have in Luke chapter 7? Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, 
and his disciples and a large crowd went with him. As he approached the gate of the town, a man who had died was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. And with her was a large crowd from the town. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came forward and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, rise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized all of them, and they glorified God, saying, Look what the crowd says when they see this. A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has looked favorably on his people. This ongoing issue of who Jesus is and that he's a prophet keeps happening over and over again. Take a look at the issue about who Jesus is in the conversation indirectly with John the Baptist that Luke has, that others had as well. But the spin that's put on it is very particular in Luke's gospel, and it echoes back to chapter 4. The passage that Jesus, when he first publicly spoke, read from Isaiah, is echoed again here in a way, and Luke redacts this material in a way that draws attention to that connection. I'm in verse 18 and following of chapter 7. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to Jesus, to the Lord, to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Jesus had just then cured many people of diseases, plagues, and evil spirits, and had given sight to many who were blind. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. The poor have good news brought to them. This is an echo again of the passage from Isaiah that Jesus first publicly quoted and then applied to himself in Luke's gospel. While we're in this chapter, I should mention something that we won't have much time to talk about, but that is the frequency with which Jesus hangs out not only with sinners and tax collectors, the oppressed, but also the frequency with which Luke portrays Jesus having parties with Pharisees. There are over 10 meals with Pharisees in the Gospel of Luke. You can contrast with that with Matthew. You look long and hard to find Matthew emphasizing Jesus eating with the Pharisees. Look at the same chapter, still chapter 7, more underlining Jesus as the prophet who is anointed by God. Remember, anointed means Messiah, the prophet who is the Messiah. Jesus is eating with the Pharisees. A woman comes in and pours ointment on Jesus and starts kissing his feet and rubbing her hair on his feet. The other people at the meal say, don't you know what kind of woman this is? If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this was who is touching him. She's a sinner. But it turns out that the story tells you Jesus is a prophet, but he's a different kind of prophet. He's a prophet to the marginalized. And that this is a confirmation of his anointing by the Lord. It's a confirmation of his anointing by Yahweh. And so Jesus says to them, you did not anoint my head with oil but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven, etc. Let's move forward now. So far, I think I've convinced you, hopefully, that this portrayal of Jesus as the ultimate prophet and therefore as the new Elijah is central to the portrayal of Jesus. And he brings salvation, this prophet, so it links up with the Savior uh, portrayal of Jesus as well. Salvation, though, mainly for the oppressed and marginalized. One thing that's sometimes noted by scholars is in chapter 9. I mentioned to you that in the second volume of this author's work, 
that he explicitly has the Deuteronomy passage relating to a prophet like Moses quoted and deliberately associates Jesus with the prophet like Moses in the second volume. But now we're getting to the transfiguration. So after Peter identifies Jesus as the Messiah, still in that same chapter 9, we have the story of the transfiguration, also in Mark, also in Matthew. But one of the interesting terms that Luke uses is this, Exodus. He uses the term Exodus when he talks about the transfiguration. So that Moses and Elijah appear. They appeared in glory and were speaking of Jesus' exodus. Departure is how it's translated for you. But what's interesting is this rough little tiny snippet here can be understood in conjunction with that later material in Acts as the idea of Jesus as Moses who brings an exodus. And not only that, but there's the huge interpolation, the big interpolation that I'm talking about in Luke that I mentioned earlier, where we're soon getting to it from chapter 9 to 19. There's a whole chunk of material in Luke that is not that way at all in any of the other Gospels. And it's all about Jesus' departure for Jerusalem, his exodus to Jerusalem. So chapter 9, verse 51, is the beginning of the narrative that Jesus is constantly looking forward to Jerusalem from then on in the narrative of Luke. And this focus on Jerusalem is, is characteristic of Luke-Acts generally. And so a whole lot goes on on Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, right? If it's 10 chapters long, that's a long journey. All kinds of teachings that you might see elsewhere in Matthew are in this section, but also all kinds of material that's not in Matthew or Mark, and that is therefore considered the L material, you know, the material that Luke had that other people did not have, takes place in this section from chapter 9 to chapter 19. But look at how it begins. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Chapter 9 to 19, it takes him that long. And all kinds of things happen on the way to Jerusalem. Scholars have been somewhat mystified by any structure of this whole section, what is called the big interpolation, chapter 9 to 19. There's no clear structure to it. And scholars have debated and tried to figure out how is Luke organizing his material here. And they've not come up with a very clear answer, besides that we know that the issue is he's going to Jerusalem. But what I want to point out to you, because we can't say much about structure, is the way in which the oppressed and marginalized theme Jesus as the prophet who has come to bring salvation to the marginalized, the poor, the blind, the lame, the tax collectors, the sinners, the marginalized of society is underlined over and over again throughout this whole journey to Jerusalem. You have many parables that relate to rich and poor in Luke's gospel generally. The ones that are not in any other gospel appear mainly in this big interpolation. Let's just go through uh, a couple of them to draw attention to how the theme is being underlined. A theme that's already been developed way back at the birth of Jesus in the narrative and confirmed to you when Jesus was explained to be the prophet like Elijah. Take a look at chapter 12 where we have the parable of the rich man. Jesus tells a parable about a rich fool and it's about a guy who keeps keeping things to himself, storing up all kinds of things for himself and then gets nothing out of it. What's important to us here is, and the prophet uh, issue coming to, to the fore again in this chapter 13. Jesus said to them, go and tell that fox for me, listen, I'm casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day I must be on my way, because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, and stones those who are sent to it. 
underlining, Jesus is a prophet. He's going to be killed in Jerusalem. Look at the parable of the Great Supper. Matthew has a different redaction of it than Luke does. And that's quite important for underlining the marginalized in Luke's portrayal. Here it's the parable of the Great Supper. So he's eating with Pharisees again. And he's telling a parable, a story, that will say something about what the kingdom of God is like. That's the ongoing theme of Jesus' teaching in Luke, just like it was in, in Mark's gospel and Matthew's gospel. Jesus is always talking about the kingdom of God. And here it's that a kingdom of God is like a dinner. And it goes on about various people being invited to the dinner. That uh, an invitation goes out to a variety of people and each of the people give excuses. I can't come, I've got to go do this. And the end of the story says what happens when all these people reject the invitation. And remember, this is the kingdom of God is like the banquet. Then the owner of the house became angry and said to his slave who had gone out and invited the people who rejected his invitation, go out at once into the streets and lanes of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Some of them were in the one quoted from Isaiah and are the ones that are get repeated in various places. They're Lucan redaction. The point is that the marginalized being the ones in the kingdom of God in Luke's story of Jesus. In Matthew's version of this parable, it's not the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame in the kingdom of God. It's someone else. It's just, in that version, it's just go out and invite anyone. It's sort of a random kingdom of God in Matthew's telling of this parable. Let's look at a couple more of these rich, poor sort of elements and marginalized elements in this section here. Chapter 16 has a saying of Jesus that is not attested in any other gospel. And once again, it's drawing the contrast between rich and poor that we saw in his inaugural sermon. Blessed are the poor, woe to the rich, is repeated here in a different way. Here Jesus teaches, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, don't confuse him with the Lazarus of John's gospel, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. Here's quite a contrast. A rich guy partying away, and right outside his door, a very poor man. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, the rich man says, and send me Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. There's the reversal theme that you saw in the inaugural sermon of Jesus in this gospel. Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, that he may warn them, so that they will not also come into this place of torment. The rich end up in hell burning in Luke's gospel. The poor are the ones who gain salvation by being healed from their sickness, their blindness, their being crippled, and who ultimately end up in the kingdom of God like in that previous parable. The rich-poor contrast is constantly there in Luke's gospel. Let's move ahead to the passion story and the rest of Jesus in Luke's gospel and just highlight a couple of things. Basically, the narrative of Jesus' arrest, trials, and execution 
are similar in Mark, Matthew, and Luke, partly because Matthew and Luke are in large part dependent on Mark. Luke is once again similar to Mark. However, the thing that stands out that's different about Luke's narrative of the arrest, trial, and execution of Jesus is that he has an extra trial of Jesus that is in no other gospel. You have the plot to kill Jesus. You have the Last Supper, as in the other narratives that we looked at, where Jesus is having his final Passover supper with his disciples, and he predicts that he's going to be betrayed. You then have it turn out that Judas has betrayed him, and they're in the garden, and Jesus is arrested, just like the other Gospels that we've looked at so far. You then have Jesus brought before the high priest, just like in Mark's Gospel, although there are differences in the way it's told here. But nonetheless, in terms of the sequence of what's happening, and the material we have, it's the same so far. You then have Jesus being brought from the high priest, chapter 23, to Pilate, similar to the progression of the other Gospels. But here's where you have an additional thing that's not in any other Gospel. Pilate has Jesus brought before him, decides in this narrative that maybe I should send Jesus to the guy who's in charge of that district before I decide what to do with him. And so in Luke's Gospel, Jesus gets sent to Herod the Tetrarch, who's the Tetrarch of Galilee and other regions in the northern part of Israel. So in chapter 23, verses 6 and following, you have this additional trial that you don't have anywhere else. The question is, where does it come from? Obviously, potentially, Luke has other sources that claim that Jesus had a trial before Herod the Tetrarch. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him off to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. He sends him to Herod, who happens to be around during Passover, understandably. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had been wanting to see him for a long time, because he had heard about him and was hoping to see him perform some sign. He questioned him at length, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. Even Herod, with his soldiers, treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him. Then he put on an elegant robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. And then he goes back to Pilate. The rest of the narrative follows closely the general gist of what happens in Mark. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharlan.com. I like early Christianity. The introductory music for this second series in the podcast is my own remix of portions of What You Are from the album Without Zero by Joie. This is copyright 2007 Real World Records and it's used with permission under a Creative Commons type license.